So I wonder if you've ever been on a ship. Well, there's a very different views on a ship depending where you're at. And uh, quite, it's quite common to have to pay more to go on a higher deck if you're on a ferry and get a better view higher up. So you can uh, pay more to get a better view. But some people maybe have a, a view underneath the, uh, the, the deck, so below deck through a porthole. That would be very different from a, a view um, from the crow's nest, wouldn't it? Or different from a view of the deck. So wherever you are on the boat, um, there's a different view. So you might have a limited view of what's going on, or you might have a better view of what's going on. And the theme of our sermon today is very much about seeing and perceiving. And depending on what we see and the way we live, our life will be affected by that. And the challenge is that we only have a limited view of life, whereas we stand, wherever we stand on the ship, but God views the whole of the sea and the whole of the land, doesn't he? As we look at this narrative this morning, we're going to think through three things. Will we choose God's will or our will? How the wrong choice leads to sin and suffering, whereas God's will leads to abundant blessing. So firstly then, God's will or our will? And as we start this passage, looking at verses 1 and 2, it's what Sarah sees, okay? So in Sarah's case, she's the matriarch in her society. People go to her for advice in the community. She's at the top with her husband, Abraham, who God is blessing. And as God blesses Abraham more and more, he receives more servants, more animals, more wealth. And there's more and more pressure on Sarah. There's more and more wealth to be passed on to Abraham's descendants. But he doesn't have any descendants, does he? There's more and more people as servants coming into this community, listening to Abraham's story and about God's promise to him, his amazing promises to Abraham. And yet all this just adds a weight to Sarah's shoulders. Because in terms of reproduction, she's past her childbearing age. And society is expecting her to provide an heir. And so in their culture, Sarah sees herself as a failure, unable to provide or produce a lasting security for her family, provide this heir. However, it's not just the society, is it? Her husband, Abraham, has told her that God has promised that their descendants will be a great nation, Genesis 12, verse 2. So she's letting down her husband. And also God has told Abraham that he and Sarah will have a great nation from which will come a hero, the Messiah, the one who will save the world. So this is another blow to Sarah because now is she letting God down too? And is she letting the world down? Even though this is a short two verses, it can feel, we can feel the lifetime of pain here for Sarah. She's in a sad and difficult situation, a situation which heartbreakingly affects many today. The pressures of the world get to Sarah. She has this burden on her shoulders that she can't handle. Sarah sees from a human perspective and she wants to fix it herself. She wants to take control of what she can do. I mean, she's used to doing that as the matriarch. She wants to fix it herself. And in terms of the ship analogy, maybe she thinks she's got the best view. 
in the crow's nest looking round and she thinks she has the only direction to sail in. And this is instead of being patient and waiting on God and it becomes too much. Verse two, we see that she blames God for this. She says, God's made her this way. It's, it's her fault, uh, sorry, it's his fault that she is childless. Therefore, she thinks she needs to go about this a different way. Verse one, we see the opportunity uh, comes about where she can take back some control. And she looks at her Egyptian slave named Hagar. And just if one of her servants has a baby, then she can take that baby as her heir. Now, this was a universal practice in this culture at the time. And Sarah was the matriarch. So her servant's baby would be her property, if you like. She could raise him as her own. But, and this is a very important but, for this plan to work, Abraham is going to have to take a second wife. He's going to have to sleep with another woman. So Sarah's plans go directly against God's word. They go against God's character, God's holiness. And in Genesis 2 verse 24, it says, One man and one woman are to come together to become one flesh. There's nowhere in the Bible that condones polygamy. It's devastating wherever we see it. Whatever story involves polygamy in the Bible, it works out badly for everyone involved. It's devastating for women and their children and the relationships. And there's a reason why God tells a man to marry one woman. So Sarah's lack of trust because of what she sees causes her to act in disobedience to God. She chooses her own will over God's will, like a, a shortcut to fulfill her desire. Now, trusting God's promises means obeying his word. Obedience is, is like the proof of our trust. There's no smoke without fire. Well, there's no trust without obedience. When in life uh, are we tempted to see things our way and take back control in our own hands? When can't we wait? When does the lack of trust lead to impatience or, or disobedience for us? Maybe you're single here today and you get asked every Christmas, when are you ever going to get married? Or why do you have to wait for a Christian guy or a Christian girl? Or it can be so tempting to, to tell a lie, to manipulate a situation, to bring about what we want to happen sooner than planned, cutting corners by disregarding God's word. And this wisdom from one of my pastors in London really resonated with me. It says, do not let the fear of the future in front of us drive out the faith in the Lord above us. We need to cling to God's promises and to his commands and not let the longings of our hearts stop us trusting in and obeying God. And we see why in this second point here, our will leads to sin and sorrow. A couple of weeks ago, my family and I were driving home and we were behind a skip on a lorry. Now, for those of you who don't know, a lorry is a truck in Britain. <laughs> so we, uh, we went under this low bridge under, uh, behind this lorry and all of a sudden there was a terrible scraping, scratching sound. And as we look up in front of us, the truck was getting caught on the roof of this bridge and there was 
bits of plaster falling and paint from this truck and just a horrible noise. Thankfully, it got through. It squeezed through. Now, I've got a picture of this. This isn't the, this isn't the, the one I saw. This is another one that obviously didn't make it through. But what would you do if you were driving a truck and you had to drive around a long diversion, weren't sure of the directions, but then you see a sign for a low tunnel where you wanted to go? Would you risk it? Would you take it and hope that you could save time and squeeze through at the risk of getting stuck or maybe causing lots of damage? Well, in our Bible passage today, we see that Sarah and Abraham try to take the shortcut. And despite all the signs telling them that God is going to keep his promises to their family, instead they try to do it their way. And that ends up causing a lot of damage in the process. And as the narrative continues, it's not just Sarah who's lost sight of God and his promises, but Abraham too. We see that their rebellion has a terrible consequences. And it's a pattern that is all too familiar in the book of Genesis that we're in. Just think for a moment about Abraham. God has spoken to him. He's made these great promises to him in chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. God even met with him in his doubts and cut a covenant with him that he would be faithful to these promises. You heard about that last week. So, so faithful that whether it was God himself or Abraham that broke the promise, it's God who would take the consequences on himself. And in chapter 15, Abraham was on a spiritual high. But now, it's 10 years later. 10 years since he heard God give him that promise and he's starting to get shaky. Maybe you've received a promise from God. Or maybe you're praying about a situation and have been praying about a situation for a long, long time. And it looks like nothing's going to change. How do you respond? Here in 16 verse 2, after 10 years of listening to the voice of God, whose voice does Abraham listen to? He listens to the voice of Sarah. In the NIV translation, it says, Abraham agreed to what Sarah said. Abraham goes along with plan B. The plan that meant turning their backs on God and doing it their own way. Not trusting in the promise, but trusting in it themselves. Why didn't he just go outside and look up to the stars? Why didn't he just ask God or call out to God about such a big decision? And again, it's not about not making plans. That's not it. Proverbs 21 verse 5. But it's not making plans that go against scripture or without consulting the Lord. Now, let's go back to Genesis 3. Can you remember what, the, what Satan says to Eve in the garden? Verse 4, surely you won't die. God doesn't want what's best for you. He doesn't want you to be like him. Do it your way. Take what your heart desires. Those are what he says. And Eve chooses to listen not to God, but to the devil's lies. Eve sees the fruit on the tree. She sees that it's good and she takes it. And the end of verse six, she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Sarai sees Hagar is good for having children. She tells Abraham, her husband, to take her. Abraham does just that. He takes Hagar as his wife. In that moment, 
Abraham refuses to exercise his headship. He abdicates responsibility of the situation and he fails to trust and obey God. And like in the garden, at first, things don't seem to have gone too badly, do they? Adam and Eve didn't drop down dead in that second, did they? And for Abraham and Sarah, Hagar conceives a child. Their plan seems to have worked. And that can happen to us too, can't it? When we make a godless decision, it can look like it's worked in our lives. We found a way to satisfy a, a desire and we feel satisfied in that moment, but it never lasts long. There's a warning here in the story. When we turn our back on God, it can lead to sin and sorrow. And in verse four, we see that quickly things go wrong. Hagar becomes pregnant, but now the tables change. Suddenly, Hagar feels powerful. She's married to the boss and she's carrying his heir, while the woman who used to be her boss is just old and childless. The direct translation for the Hebrew for feeling contempt for a mistress here is, in her eyes, her mistress was small. In her eyes, her mistress was small. Not only have things changed for Hagar, but for Sarah too. Now she sees this woman carrying her husband's son, her, her belly growing every day faced with the fact that Hagar is doing what she hasn't been able to do all these years. And now her servant is looking down on her. That's going to hurt, isn't it? So Abraham and Sarah's actions have caused a complete mess. And what was once a functional family is now a dysfunctional one. Where there was unity, there's now disunity. And that's only the start of it. There's more hints of Genesis 3 here. The blame game starts between Sarah and Abraham, verse 5 and 6. You're responsible for this wrong. It's all your fault, Abraham. Look at the trouble you've caused. May the Lord judge between you and me. And Abraham's response is not any better, is it? Verse 6, do whatever you think best. She's your problem, not mine. She's your servant. Do with her as you think best. She's your servant. Really? Really, after what Abraham's just done, that's his response. So, verse 6, Sarah deals harshly with Hagar. She mistreats her. We don't know what that mistreatment looked like, but it's the same word that was used in chapter 15, verse 13 of uh, Genesis, which describes the affliction of the Israelites, that they would, the, the affliction that the Israelites would suffer under the hands of the Egyptians. But here is an Egyptian suffering at the hands of an Israelite. And Hagar flees her mistress. And it was, it was that bad that, it, that she ran away, a pregnant woman into the desert. That's how bad the mistreatment was. Now, this has all happened because instead of waiting for the Lord, Abraham and Sarah tried to do things on their own way. And instead of trusting in God's supernatural grace to keep his promises, they tried to work it out on their own. And they're facing these painful consequences which would send ripples throughout history, wouldn't they? We still see the, the trouble that goes on today. Now, Paul uses this story in Galatians, chapter 4, verse 21 to 31, to teach us clearly about our salvation. Now, there are two ways of pursuing salvation. We either trust the promises 
or we trust our own way. And Hagar and Sarah are illustrations of these two covenants. They're symbols of salvation through grace or by works. Sons that are born first according to the flesh versus born as a result of a divine promise. Now, we cannot be made right with God by our own efforts. It's not about developing our own righteousness. No, it's through God's supernatural actions in history. That's how we receive righteousness and receive God's eternal inheritance. Galatians 4 verse 30. Which path are you choosing? Who are you listening to? Are you a slave to sin? Or are you trusting in the promises and free from sin? How do, these th how, how do you see these things? We need to stop trusting in ourselves, don't we? It's, it's a dangerous game. Because everyone else is also trying to do that in the world. Everyone else is vying for control. But as Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. Our culture thinks it's progressive in how we view each other. But we just face other cultural taboos and expectations, just like Sarah. The only safe place to be, friends, is in God's will. So let's pray about God's will in our lives and for the lives of others. But before that, we've got this last point. Finally then, the redemption. God's will leads to abundant blessing. Well, we've spent two points looking at verses 1 to 6. But now... The larger part of this chapter is all about God stepping in and showing love from verses 7 to 16. We see God caring for this outcast young woman whose unborn child is not the promised one. There's no way that Hagar would make it back to Egypt to her family in her current condition. And the world doesn't care. But the Lord does. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord finds her by a spring of water. Now this is the Lord Jesus, pre-incarnate Christ. The one who walked with Adam through the garden. The one who wrestles with Jacob. The visible image of the invisible God. He comes from heaven and makes himself known to Hagar. Chapter 32 verse 30. That's a Jacob verse there. The Lord speaks tenderly to her in verse 8. And he calls her. What does he call her? He calls her by her name, Hagar. Which actually, if you look back through the story, Abraham and Sarah just refer to her as the servant or your servant. God speaks her name. And it may seem strange that he asks her these two questions. Ones that he already knows the answer to. But God is making her reflect on what she's doing. And to see her sin. And then God gives her a difficult calling. He says, go back and submit to your mistress, verse 9. But how does she go back? What kind of life is that to go back to? With an 85-year-old husband and a cruel mistress. Well, listen on to what God says to her. He, he cares about the wrong that has been done to her, verse 11. Because he has heard her affliction... He has heard of the injustice. There will be blessing. The Lord assures her in verse 10. Sarah isn't going to take your child away. You don't have to give up your child. And neither do you have to die in the desert for their sin or your sin from running away from your master. 
Instead, your son will be the start of a nation. However, the blessing is going to be a mixed one. Verse 12, Ishmael will be a wild donkey of a man and he's going to be hated. His own hand will be against others, his other brothers. And actually, if you follow the story on, it's no surprise, is it, why that happens. But the name uh, for Ishmael is God will hear. It's a lasting encouragement to Hagar, but possibly also a lasting rebuke to Sarah. Because God hears of injustice. God hears those cutting remarks that we say to those brought low by them. And it's helpful to know that a God who cares hears, isn't it? And to the one who seeks to hurt with words or look down on others by using them in a derogatory way, then it's also a chilling warning that God hears, isn't it? But what does Hagar focus on here? What captures her heart? Well, look at verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Did you know she's the only one in the Bible who gets to give God a name? The one who Abraham and Sarah don't even bother saying her name. She's allowed to give God a name. And that's in line with his character. He is the God who sees. Hagar, after her personal encounter with God, understands that he sees her now and he will see her in the future. He does see her in the future. And so she has the faith to return to this difficult situation. She has the faith to go back and face what she has to face. What does she have to be afraid of? If the God who loves her sees her and hears her, what does she have to be afraid of? Hagar is free from the world and the world's expectations, trusting that God sees, trusting in the supernatural grace of God. It's a little taste of being included in God's blessing in the world. Now, maybe today you feel betrayed. Maybe you feel like a victim Perhaps you are a victim of someone else's lack of faith or you're, or you're just hurting physically or mentally this morning. And God will meet you where you are. God will meet you in that desert place. Know that God is compassionate to us. He sees and he hears our afflictions too. And we know that he cares because he, he came to visit us even though he sees all our sins. He died for those. Thinking back to Hagar, it's not her son that dies in the desert, in the wilderness, is it? It's God who gives up his child. It's Jesus who dies, an outcast, away from the city. It's God who takes our punishment. So when we trust in Christ, we know that we're raised with him. We're sh we share in the promises that were given to Abraham to be part of God's people and inheritors of these eternal blessings, Galatians 3.14. Now, sometimes we might wonder, how can we be living God's way? Um, maybe we feel like a foreigner in the world or we, we face persecution from colleagues or, or maybe even family. 
and we feel like we're constantly battling temptations or worries or we feel like the devil's whispering in our ear did god really say that why not just take what our hearts desire but this passage clearly teaches us that we can't get god's blessing on our own we might try and it might feel good for a time but we won't be satisfied instead we need to go to christ and all of god's good blessings are found in christ all of uh, our, sat uh, our desires, our heart's desires can be satisfied in God. And if you haven't experienced that today, why not give it a try? Why not ask a bit more? Why not uh, come for prayer after the service? There'll be someone here who can answer any questions you have. Thank you for listening today. Let's pray.